what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Gather round the Snapchat, children! (laughs) I'll tell you the tale (laughs) of the landline. That's Eliza Schlesinger and the opening bit from her Netflix special, Elder Millennial. Cracks me up every time I even think about it. I relate to this hard. I have tales of landlines, dial-up, life before Google, life before Amazon, Zanga, LiveJournal, and MySpace. I have a whole summer camp's worth of scary technology stories to tell the little Zoomers. My point is that I started creating for the internet back in 2003, took a hiatus, and then came back at the dawn of Web 2.0 in 2008. Then I was blogging three times a day and building a significant following on Twitter. I didn't think of myself as a creator, though. A writer, a blogger, a strategist, yes, but not a creator. According to journalist Taylor Lorenz, YouTube didn't start calling the people uploading videos to their platform creators until 2011, and they were the first to define the term in relation to online content and social media. The term kind of languished in relative obscurity for almost a decade, but by 2020, it had hit the mainstream. Before that, though, the first person I knew who was talking about the creator economy was Gina Bianchini, the founder of Mighty Networks. We define creators as people who are able to bring people together to sort of create a niche an area of expertise, an area of interest, an area that is just fresh and interesting that delivers results and transformation for other people. Now, the way the rest of the world defines creators is content creators who produce content and build audiences and seek to occasionally monetize them. The creator economy is still in its relative infancy. The truth is we don't know what the creator economy is yet, but that doesn't stop me from asking the question. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. On this episode, I'm digging into the question, what is the creator economy and why do so many creators end up miserable? Now, when I first heard Gina talking about building mighty networks for creators, I was a bit thrown off. I saw it as a tool for small business owners, organizations, and movements, and I can remember talking with her about that distinction at the time. To my mind, especially back in 2017, a creator was someone who made money off of content via a social media platform. A business owner, in this case, was someone who used content to market a product or service. Now, if you've been around the internet block for a bit, you can probably see this distinction. But if you've really only ventured into the territory of content marketing and social media in the last few years, this distinction is probably meaningless. And that's because the creator economy has evolved. Creators are no longer simply influencers with a little more to say. They're community builders, media entrepreneurs, and merch designers. Most of mainstream media hasn't caught on to this evolution yet. 
I follow a couple of journalists who have, Taylor Lorenz at The New York Times, who I mentioned earlier, and Rebecca Jennings at Vox. We still see plenty of reporting that centers on the influencer or advertising models and much less coverage of emerging ways for creators to make a living. Mainstream media is still trying to figure out what's happening on TikTok. And to be fair, I don't always understand what's happening on TikTok either. And I regularly ask my daughter for a report. Now, Gina wanted a definitive way to share what she saw as the creator economy with the wider world. So she commissioned an independent research firm and asked them to dive in. Gina wanted to find out what creators' challenges were, how much money they were making, how they were making that money, and importantly, how they were feeling about life as a creator. I wanted to commission research that was absolutely 100% independent, objective, that we had, that, that no one could come back and say, oh, well, you did that research with your thumb on the scale for Mighty Networks. And so that's what I did. You know, I found an amazing strategist named Zoe Skamen. And then I basically was like, Zoe, let's, I'll write the check, but otherwise I need you to go find a research firm Let's do the largest study that has ever been done of creators. So again, no one can no one can come back and be like, oh, yeah, but that you only like you only surveyed, you know, 500 people as opposed to the largest study. So Zoe ran with it. So we brought in a, a, a research firm called Nonfiction, amazing research firm. Uh, they came out of Vice. And the research methodology, both qualitatively and quantitatively. And then, you know, we had some starting hypotheses that, you know, I offered and then Zoe ran with and the nonfiction team ran with. But beyond that, I was contractually obligated to stay out of the research and results. The first thing they discovered in the research was something both Gina and I were already familiar with the grueling hamster wheel of content creation, and the negative impact it can have on creators' lives. 93% of creators surveyed said that being a creator has had a negative impact on their lives. It was, again, consistent with what I was looking at and seeing just anecdotally in terms of the people that I was meeting. And we have created through social media this promise of making money and making a living following your passions. And the game is rigged. The game is rigged. And it is somewhat offensive to me how rigged the game is. If you've ever tried to replicate the success of celebrity entrepreneurs or follow the tips and tricks of the people who make a living teaching you this stuff, you know what Gina is talking about here. You know the game is rigged. And yet, the promise of making it work is intoxicating. So I want to focus on how the game is rigged for a bit. The first way the game is rigged? Well, Gina says it's how social platforms are designed to serve two different customer bases. No one at these platforms are inherently evil. These platforms were built for two sets of people, two, basically two audiences. Normal everyday people, you know, you show up on you show up on Facebook, and you're like, "Hey, I want to reconnect with the people I went to elementary school with. This is fun. 
That was the novelty and the and the power of Facebook early on. Or in the case of, of Instagram, I, I, I want to look at beautiful things. I want to see, you know, I, I like the fact that I can create in this way and consume in this way is really cool and really interesting. And then advertisers. So those are the two audiences that any of these platforms have been built for. And if you look at what their actions are through those those filter, the filter of, oh, they're built for two things that are not the third thing. The third thing are the super users, the creators that have emerged from this world that have taken the same, you know, basically the game of you can build an audience on social media. That audience can get extraordinarily big because of the network effect that they have and the fact that you know, the, the, the product originally started as whether it was photos or videos or, or the ability, the ability to produce content built out a network of people who wanted more of that and, and came back there. It's inevitable that you're going to have super users and creators are essentially the super users that have emerged from these platforms. The challenge is that the super users, the, the creators, are sort of foreign to these platforms. You know, so so you know, if you look at Facebook for example, Facebook believes and why would they believe anything else? They have only had dramatic success with the following model. Those are our users. You rent them from us. But at any point in time, we get to say whether or not you get to keep them. At the end of the day, I think we know this. These platforms were not built for the way we use them to grow audiences and build small businesses. But it's so easy to forget it in practice. Now, the second way the game is rigged is the way in which these platforms manipulate unpaid labor. No doubt you've heard something like this before. Oh, it's not working? Well, you're not trying hard enough. You're not creating enough content. You need to be posting more. You need to be out there more. You need you need to feed the beast, basically. The reason posting more, learning what people like to share, trying out every new tool the platforms create, and responding to every comment seems to be the answer is that the platforms depend on our labor. They depend on us to fill the feeds with things that keep people scrolling, clicking, and viewing ads. The platforms care about us at a group level. They need those super users to stay on the factory floor, but they don't care at all about us at the individual level. They don't care that they're using our labor in ways that make us miserable or jeopardize our livelihoods. They don't care that, as Jenny O'Dell writes in How to Do Nothing, quote, that we are left with 24 potentially monetizable hours that are sometimes not even restricted to our time zones or our sleep cycles. 77% of creators surveyed said that if something changed in the algorithm, it would have an immediate and negative impact on their lives and their, their livelihood. Now for a moment of sociological and historical context. This isn't new. In his book, What Tech Calls Thinking, Adrian Dobb points to how affective labor, service, and care work is expected to be unpaid. This is work typically done by women, and therefore by the transitive property of exploitation. You lose. We find that work women do is expected to be 
unpaid. Those Yelp reviews, the motivational quotes, the careful representations of home life, the free education, the heavy emotional lifting, none of those deserves compensation, right? Dob writes sarcastically, quote, Who knows what gentle disposition moves these good-natured souls to write? What whimsy makes them review restaurants for free? It's not their job. It's a hobby, something to occupy their time. They are passionate, supportive volunteers who want to help other people. He goes on to explain how these same scripts are used to define what is real labor and what is not, what activities require compensation and which do not. The same scripts that are used against women, disabled people, people of color, queer people, and other marginalized folks and passed off as not a fit for company culture. While platforms don't recognize our contributions as labor, it certainly feels like a job. Labor writer Amelia Horgan calls it the jobification of everyday life. I'm going to explore the labor side of this question more in the next episode. But let's get back to the research on the creator economy and something that feels a little more hopeful. The other thing that was really exciting to see in this research is that there is an emerging vanguard of the creator economy. They are pioneering something different. They are pioneering independence. And they are pioneering a world in which they own their communities. They don't rent audiences. They really look at how they are carving out a niche because that for any entrepreneur, any small business owner, any, any creator, the more that you have a niche that combines the purpose or motivation with a very sort of specific, uh, we talk about as your ideal member that you start with, when you have those things together, magic can start to happen. So niche, not broad, community, not audiences, because what is also really clear about social media is what what social media giveth, they also can taketh away. And then lastly, and I think this is actually, you know, the, the thing that as we look forward over the next 12, 24 months, I think is gonna become more and more Uh, accepted is the answer, although it is not accepted today. These independent creators, this new vanguard of the creator economy, they are focused on how are they building out a network effect? How How are they taking advantage of the same powerful dynamics that built Facebook or Instagram or TikTok? It's about how do you create the conditions for people to meet, build relationships with each other, tell their stories, their experiences, their ideas, collaborate with each other. And when you make that shift, the really cool thing is you're like, oh, oh, wait a second. This almost feels too easy. This feels too light. This feels too fun because I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be working hard. I'm supposed to produce content every minute of every day in in every way. I'm supposed to be like personally responding to every DM that I get. I can certainly attest to the fun of watching people come together, solve each other's challenges, and share their experiences. And I will also say that it takes care and intention to create the space where that comes easily. Building a space for people to gather safely 
requires emotional labor, something some of us are better suited to than others. Putting that aside till next week, though, let's do some math on the creator economy, because the numbers reveal both disturbing information and exciting trends. To make $1,000 a month on TikTok, you need millions of followers. To make $1,000 a month on YouTube, you need anywhere between 1 million and 2 million monthly views. On Instagram, you need roughly 100,000 followers. On, on Substack, where you're writing all the time and you're, you know, you're building, you know, you're building your email newsletter, you need like 300 people. And so what's the answer from social platforms to, to that fact? Oh, well, you know, not all creators want, you know, that's not why creators are doing this. So they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, it's like, oh, you can, you know, the promise of being a creator is that you can, you can have fame and fortune. It's about what you can make money doing. And then when you point out what I've observed is when I point out these, again, facts, these are facts, then it becomes about self-expression. To me, that is insincere. That is, uh, that is big platforms that have their own network effects that are essentially telling people to work really, 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 really hard to sacrifice their mental health to question who they are as people and what value they bring to the world so that they can make more money. And I think that that is massively offensive. When you take the, the path of the independent creator, this new creator manifesto, own, not rent, niche, not broad. And again, in niche, you know, focusing on what are the results and transformation you can help a member get by being a part of a community, not an audience, and prioritizing a network effect, not just a content conveyor belt, you can make $1,000 with 30 members. Last time I checked the math, it's a lot easier to get 30 people who are building value with each other and you than it is to get 300 people to buy your email newsletter subscription, to get 100,000 people to follow you on Instagram, to get a million to two million views on YouTube. All right, this is very true. You need loads more followers to directly monetize an audience on YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram than you do to make money on a product or service you offer. And I want to clarify a bit here, as well as tie in some more context from Gina. Building an audience to monetize and building a customer base are two different activities that are often conflated. I wrote about this last year, and I'll drop the link in the show notes. The confusion between the two strategies is a large part of what ends up making so many social media users miserable. To make money from sponsorship or ads, you do need big numbers, or at the least, a highly engaged, super niche audience that's hard to reach with traditional marketing. Building a customer base, as Gina said, can start with selling to 30 people, or 10 people, or three people for that matter. But the tactics that are commonly taught to small business owners that could be focused on building customer bases are most often the tactics that influencers have used to amass huge audiences, which means that we end up working with similar numbers to the audience builders looking to monetize. To get 30 customers, you might need an audience of 5,000. 
But luckily, this isn't the only way to operate. Start with even a small group. Like think about it more as a small, intimate workshop. The best communities, the best, most valuable communities come out of these these more intimate settings that then you look at and you're like, okay, wait a second. I mean, we started that with Mighty Networks. You were there for for one of our first, just bringing together 20 of our hosts. And I learned more and think about that session in terms of what we're building and scaling out now that we're, you know, we're we're at over 12,000, you know, active, amazing, paying hosts. And and communities that are generating over 6 million members. This is what I call the living room strategy for product development. It involves no audience building. Instead, it starts with building an offer for a specific group of people. As Gina said, it could be an intimate workshop or a small coaching group. There are plenty of other options, too. The difference here is that you're not focused on marketing, you're focused on sales. And that's a much faster route to $1,000 a month, or much more sustainably, a faster path to, say, $8,000 a month. Now, when I say what Gina is describing is focused on sales instead of marketing, what I mean is that you're not trying to figure out what kind of messages or posts will generate a new follower or a share. You're talking to individual people you could help figuring out what need they'd like to pay to fill, and what you could create to fill that need, assuming it's something you're interested in pursuing, of course. For so many years, the prevailing advice, which I hesitate to call it wisdom, has been to build an audience and then figure out what they want. Not only has this resulted in millions of dollars of lost revenue and unnecessarily fragile small businesses, it's led to burnout when you're pulling together all sorts of services and like, you know, organizing them with duct tape, some staples and a little bit of gum. And that is also, you know, so much of what is defining the creator economy today is this is this message of like, well, you have to stay on social. And then if you want to do anything else, you've got to do it in 15 different places, which by the way, every one of those 15 places are taking a cut. One of the agreements I ask people to make with me is try new things and stay curious. None of these things are about being at the mercy of an algorithm. Is it easy to make this shift? No. Is it valuable and awesome when you do? Yes. This is why answering the question, what is the creator economy, is so important to me. There is plenty of opportunity to go around. I believe we will continue to see novel ways to build livelihoods and increasing numbers of people who are participating in the economy outside of the container of a job. But right now, there's a lot of confusion about the different types of opportunities that exist and the actions required to seize them. And where there is confusion, there's also ample opportunity for exploitation. There's an opportunity to play with all the cheat codes and then sell people on how you did it without telling them about the cheat codes. Like Gina, I believe in the creator economy. And like Gina, I believe it will ultimately look very different from what is being portrayed in the media today. So I asked her what we can do to start moving in that direction now. Invest in your community and communities 
Invest in the connections. Invest in the relationships. Invest in how each and every one of us is helping the people in our orbit be themselves, take on things that they didn't think were possible, realize a sense of a sense of accomplishment and challenge and belonging with with vigor and with challenge but also with that sense of accomplishment that sense of meaning that sense of purpose because here's the thing i know to be true all this new technology that's coming all the stuff that you hear about you know, JPEGs as NFTs and new economies and this coin or that coin or this project or that, it's all gonna happen. But the people that are going to thrive in the coming world are those that have invested in not just building a community for community's sake, but a community or communities that enable each and every one of us to reach higher, to belong to something bigger than ourselves, to do things we did not think were possible. We are here to stretch and grow and learn and follow our curiosities to, to different places that it takes us. It's not to be the most popular. It's not to be the person with the biggest audience. It's not to be on a treadmill every day. It's about how do we bring meaning and purpose to our lives and the lives of the people around us. I truly appreciate Gina's vision and how it's informed by both keen observation and insider knowledge. I agree that investing in our communities and focusing in on the needs of the people we want to serve will give us the best results over time. And I agree that starting small is the fastest way to sustainable revenue. And I still have a lot of questions. What is the long-term viability of the creator economy? Will there be enough opportunity for those who want to be creators and put in the work toward that goal to pursue this work at a sustainable revenue threshold? What guardrails or policy changes need to be put in place as this market continues to grow? For instance, the vast majority of our social services and safety net in the United States is tied to employment. Creators don't get health insurance unless they buy it on the open market. And who can afford to become a creator? And who is forced into hustling or gigging to make a living? And will internalized bias lead to even more information and community silos on the internet? What do the gig economy and the creator economy have in common, for better or worse? And what can the people participating in these labor markets learn from each other? And how can they organize to impact policy change? And what about emotional labor? Content creation, social media, developing courses, it is a treadmill. But emotional labor can be a treadmill too. And building a community does require emotional labor. As promised, this is going to be the question I'm tackling in next week's episode with both some personal revelations and a lot of research. Find out more about Gina Bianchini and Mighty Networks at MightyNetworks.com and check out the full report on the creator economy at NewCreatorManifesto.com. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to What Works Weekly, my weekly email newsletter, where I'm currently sharing podcast episodes in essay form, along with my favorite reads or listens from the last week. Go to ExploreWhatWorks.com to subscribe free. 
What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. <laughs>